behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the November 2016 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Alain Tremblay. He's the professor of medicine from the Division of Respiratory Medicine from the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. He's here to discuss his article, The Low Prevalence of High-Grade Lesions Detected with Autofluorescence Bronchoscopy in the Setting of Lung Cancer Screening in the Pan-Canadian Lung Cancer Screening Study. Alain, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for the invite. Our next guest is Dr. David Ost, Professor of Medicine from the University of Texas MD Anderson, MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. He's here to discuss his accompanying editorial, The Importance of Negative Studies, Autofluorescence Bronchoscopy for Lung Cancer Screening. David, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. All right, guys. So, um, L.A., why don't you start off just for maybe some of our listeners aren't really even familiar with what in the heck autofluorescence bronchoscopy is and, and both kind of the concept or, or how one would do it. Um, and then both of you, if you don't mind, uh, you know, to set a stage of you know, how did we get to the point of, of this very large study within Canada? You know, there clearly must have been some prior data that, that propelled this forward. So set the stage for us. Right, so, uh, so autofluorescence bronchoscopy is a technique that's been around for over 20 years now. Um, and uh, basically the general concept is that uh, with uh, special filters, the uh, reflected light emitted from the bronchoscope um, reflects differently or autofluoresces differently in areas of the airway mucosa that uh, might be abnormal, in particular uh, malignant or premalignant. Um, so the general idea is that you do your airway exam uh, with uh, white light bronchoscopy, uh, and then you do it again with autofluorescence bron bronchoscopy, and you should be able to pick up additional abnormalities that were not visible to the naked eye or to, or to, or to white light uh, bronchoscopy. Um, and there's multiple systems that have been uh, placed on the market uh, you know, with that purpose in mind. Uh, really, over the last 20 years, I uh, forget exactly what year the first system came out, but uh, it was sometime in the, in the uh, mid-'90s, I believe. Um, and we, we know from multiple, multiple studies that the autofluorescent systems are better than white light bronchoscopy at picking up these early uh, dysplastic uh, insight to lung malignancy. So that's something we've known for a long time, um, but we haven't really known how to apply that in a clinical setting. And the debate about whether, you know, how much did it matter? Did it, did, you know, you can find them, but if you... You know, at what rate and do these lesions progress, uh, you know, et cetera. I believe that's part of this, the story as well. I think so. And, I, I mean, along with, with those questions of what does it mean to have a dysplastic lesion, in fact, I think autofluorescence bronchoscopy has opened the door to uh, us understanding that the lesions even exist and how frequent they are. Uh, and over time, what, what they, how they evolve, do they all become uh, malignant, malignant lesions eventually or not? And that's really something that's evolved over that 20-year that period uh, to the point uh, that we now know that some of these uh, earlier dysplastic lesions really are very unlikely to, to progress to, uh, to, to, to invasive lesions. And perhaps that's one of the uh, reasons these techniques haven't been as useful clinically is that um, they don't necessarily identify lesions that will uh, lead to, to clinical disease. So, I mean, so the idea was essentially screening bronchoscopy. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's been it's been used initially in very high risk group, and you know, some of the interest would would be, for example, in someone that you're already performing a bronchoscopy for a right upper lobe tumor to see if there's any other synchronous cancers. For example, these people would have a, a much higher risk of having that than a, a more general uh, 
uh, group of smokers, for example. So that's where uh, that's the kind of patients that initially underwent these tests. And in in these fairly highly selected groups, um, investigators have found fairly high rates of uh, abnormal findings. So then the concept then, okay, so with that backdrop, then the idea here, of course, uh, as both of you highlighted in your articles, I mean, with lung cancer screening, um, you know, moving forward and becoming, um, I guess, arguably, uh, it is mainstream, and but it's obviously still having some implementation issues. But, you know, we all are happy and we're all excited. We also think we can do better. Um, and that struck me as one of the underlying themes here for the for the Pan-Canadian Lung Cancer Screening Study was, you know, what else can we do to try to improve outcomes for this high-risk patient population even further than just low-dose CT scan? Well, I think that's exactly the setting. You know, when we started this study, it was pre-release of the NLST data. This was 2007 when we started planning for this study, so it's been a long haul. Um, uh, but at that point and, and since then we know that uh, lung cancer screening was, was promising and now has been proven to reduce mortality uh, and I w- you know and, that, and that's fantastic news of course um, on the other hand I always point out and you know, it's not because I'm a pessimist but I point out that even in the screen uh, patients in NLSD 80% of the lung cancer deaths still occurred uh, so we reduced it by 20% but that doesn't mean there's no uh, room to for further improvement in our screening uh, uh, process so uh, with that in in mine, uh, again, there was some preliminary data suggesting that some of these uh, lung cancers could be CT occult. Uh, you know, these more central, perhaps squamous cell type lesions uh, would be much harder to detect on low-dose CT, uh, and that perhaps uh, something like autofluorescence bronchoscopy could uh, be the, the tool that uh, gives us that incremental uh, detection rate. And, you know, I think there's a, a fair bit of rationale for that. And there was actually empiric data from British Columbia where they'd done a a reasonable size study with uh, just over 500 patients. uh, And they had found uh, that about a quarter of all the cancers they detected were in fact CT occult. Um, Now, again, that sounds like a big study, but even if you have 500 people, you're only talking about a handful of actual cancer. So, you know, the sample size of cancer uh, is still relatively small despite a, a large number of people screened. Um, and, and, and actually looking at the NLST uh, data, there's also some interesting uh, information that comes out of that. And we, I think we all know that uh, screening is very good at detecting these more peripheral adenocarcinomas. And in the NLST, there's a, 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 a predominance of adenocarcinomas found uh, compared to what the clinical you know, uh, uh, distribution of adenocarcinoma is in uh, non-screen detected cancers, uh, lung cancers, and fewer squamous cell cancers in LST than we see clinically. So there is a skew there. Um, right. And also, when, when they look, you look at NLST um, uh, cancers that occurred between the, the screening episodes, so that were... Uh, that were not detected by the scan, the ratio shifts the other way around, that there's actually much more squamous cancers and fewer adenocarcinomas. So there is something about the low-dose CT approach that uh, is not quite as good for these central squamous-type lesions. So, so this was really the background for, for us starting uh, uh, this study. No, there, there were clearly was a, a, a very strong logic, uh, you know, and data set to push it forward. But just out of curiosity, David, uh, at MD Anderson, is is autofluorescence bronchoscopy 
part of anything routine there, or is it something that once in a while we'll we'll pull? You know, LA talked about using it, like say, in a right upper lobe lesion that you're evaluating, and you know, maybe going to go stage, but maybe evaluating for synchronous lesions and or you know, evaluating margins for resection, etc. Is it something that you have utilized in your practice, both at MD Anderson and, and prior? Um, at MD Anderson, we have not used it routinely. Um, for clinical purposes outside of a study um, setting. Uh-huh. You know, having okay. said that, we always have the capability available. So, you know, if, for example, in Japan they do sputum cytology screening and you had a positive sputum cytology, but we couldn't find the lesion on CT, then you, we would go, ahead, go in and do it. But that really doesn't occur in the United States. So right. is it available? Yes. Outside of a clinical setting, do we really use it um, hardly ever. I mean, once or twice a year in the past. I haven't used it in the last year. In the stu- but we had studies where we did do follow-up after resection um, to get tissue and for you know, molecular scientists and such. And, and, right. and we didn't find a high rate. So our results, anecdotally, were very similar to uh, Elaine's um, study here. Right, no, and that my my experience would reflect the same as well at, at our institution. Um, you know, LA. We, as we're going to get into the study now, um, one of the things that you highlighted uh, in, in the paper was the fact that um, you know you essentially, in order to actually ensure that people were doing this correctly, there was a a very rigorous training for you know these these are all people that are excellent at bronchoscopy, but actually had still a limited experience with autofluorescence, at least out of some of the, you know, established centers of excellence that, you know, have done some of the prior work in this disorder. I mean, or I'm sorry, in this technique. Um, I mean, I guess, um, you know, on one level, the study, you know, had a a good foundation of, you know, why we would do it. But that being said, with, you know, with that and with 20 years of knowing this was around, it still struck me as something that was never widely adopted, even across Canada, definitely not across the United States. And I'm just curious, uh, both of you, actually, as to your opinion as to why that may have been. Well, you know, I think I think it's a little bit like um, uh, David mentions. We, and we had a system before the study started as well, and, you know, it was used occasionally, and, um uh, you know, I've always commented that it's a, it was always a bit of a technique looking for the right indication, and everyone was really excited about it. We knew, we kind of knew what it could do, but we didn't quite know when to do it. Um, so I think even though we had the system here for many years before, uh, it wasn't something we were doing weekly by any means. Okay. So let's 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 get into the heart of the study because it, as as David pointed out in, in his editorial and, I, and I'm sure we'll echo here in the conversation. I mean, if nothing else, congratulations to to you and your group for for pulling off a, a very large, well designed, well done study in the field of bronchoscopy. That alone's an accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was a large undertaking, and I, and I have to acknowledge uh, Steve Lamb in uh, Vancouver, who is the lead behind the overhaul, overall study, uh, and also the autofluorescence uh, component in terms of uh, pushing this forward and uh, bringing these uh, multiple Canadian sites together into the PanCan group, and I think that's had uh, a really great impact uh, uh, nationally, not just as part of this study, but for uh, kind of ongoing projects and eventual implementation of, uh, of screening programs across the country. So I think this study has had a lot of of, uh, downstream uh, benefit, and he really is the one that saw this uh, and uh, was the champion for the for the whole project. Uh, you know, uh, over ten years ago now. Okay, so let's let's tell us what you tell us what you found. 
Well, so the PanCan study was uh, was developed, um, you know, primarily as a as a CT screening study. So we enrolled over 2,500 people in in eight sites across the country, and uh, you know, there is multiple research aspects to it. Um, you know, probably one of the interesting one is that we used one of these risk uh, prediction models to enroll people. Uh, as opposed to some of the, you know, what we call the NLST criteria uh, type uh, cri- uh, enrollment criteria. So we, we, we enrolled patients that, according to the calculator, had a 2% risk of lung cancer over five years, um, which gave, gave us a fairly high risk uh, uh, cohort. Um, and then uh, as part of that, uh, we uh, offered an autofluorescence bronchoscopy in the first half of the cohort, uh, ending up in about 13, with, well, exactly 1,300 uh, participants undergoing uh, that test. And, you know, the reason we didn't screen anyone, everyone, was uh, essentially a funding one. Um, uh, as you can imagine, doing 1,300 bronchoscopies has a substantial cost to it because uh, these were not considered clinical care, of course. Um, so that was uh, the background for, um, uh, uh, for the study. Um, and uh, so as you mentioned earlier, we had uh, seven sites, so we had to make sure that everyone was uh, uh, properly trained, had the right equipment. Unfortunately, each site had at least one operator that had had a significant experience either locally or during their training uh, in, in other centers uh, with the autofluorescence. Um, so they were, there was always a lead person at each site. Uh, and we also had uh, the support from Tom Suteja in uh, uh, Holland, who's, uh, you know, again, one of the pioneers in the autofluorescence field, who reviewed a lot of the uh, initial videos that we would send to him and uh, uh, fed back some comments uh, in terms of a quality analysis of the, of the procedures being performed. So we, so we had a lot of kind of... Uh, uh, Set up proper, the program set up properly to make sure that uh, the test were, was being done properly. Um, so, so right, so we so we we did go through these 1,300 uh, participants. They all underwent uh, bronchoscopy. This was all done with conscious sedation. Um, that number allowed us a power of uh, 10%. Uh, sorry, the power to detect a 10% increase in the t- detection rates uh, for cancer through the screening. So uh, the idea is that we detect 10% more cancers than we would with low-dose CT alone. So I think most people would probably agree if you're detecting fewer than that, um, the, the, the cost and, and invasiveness probably would not be justified. Right. Um, now, the main findings, you know, really were in, in some ways disappointing. Of course, when you, you, you go through that uh, effort, you, you, you hope you find something useful. Um, uh, as you mentioned, there, there's usefulness in, uh, in negative studies, but you're always hoping you'll find something uh, positive. Um, now, we did find a lot of cancers through the program, so the risk prediction model certainly worked. So we had 3.4% of our participants with a baseline cancer, and that's about three times more than an LST. So right there, you could see that we had a very high-risk population. So that is not the, probably not the problem in terms of our finding. And about 60% had emphysema on their CT scan. 50% had uh, airflow limitation on spirometry. So this was a, a really a significant uh, cohort at risk for lung cancer. Um, so uh, the AFB findings, on the other hand, were, were quite, un- quite rare. So really, of any, any findings of dysplasia or worse, so any level of dysplasia was found in uh, 1 in 20, so just over 5% of, of participants, uh, which you know, might be reasonable, but the vast majority of those were mild to moderate dysplasias. And we talked a bit earlier how those lesions, you know, are, are for the most part, do not progress to uh, invasive uh, malignancy. And really, there's no 
suggestion that those should be treated or any specific intervention is required for those. Um, so for the most part, what we found was were these very early dysplastic lesions. Um, we only found um, really CT occult lesions. We only found two significant ones. Uh, one was a CIS, so an in situ malignancy that was uh, treated locally, uh, and one was a carcinoid tumor uh, uh, that was resected. So not even a you know, a typical non-small cell that you'd associate right. with their smoking risk. So, you know, that gave us a CT occult rate of, you know, 0.15%, which is incredibly low, uh, of course, and, and I don't think anyone would think uh, justifies uh, such an expensive or invasive uh, uh, screening modality test. David, what do you think? You know, I, I basically agree with all those conclusions. I think the study was well-designed. It's really the only one of its kind in terms of autofluorescence with the, the power to detect um, this kind of, to adequately investigate this kind of study. Um, I do like the way they use their prediction rule to kind of enrich their population uh, for cancers. They gave them the best possible chance, and it, and it did work. It, I mean, it was a well-executed study. So, you know, you could say, oh, if they had found a lower cancer risk overall, because they hadn't selected, then we failed, but we were underpowered. But everything went right. They well conducted. They got a negative answer, and and it's an important negative result. Doesn't mean bad study. You know, failed to disprove the null hypothesis. Right. And um, but that for, the, I think as as you said, that's still a a very useful thing for pulmonary medicine and interventional pulmonology, uh, in particular to have high-quality evidence and data to inform uh, practice. Right, so and let's expand on that, too, because, I mean, uh, Ale, you also highlighted something. You know, you guys built a, the framework to develop, uh, you know, to essentially do a large-volume bronchoscopy study across Canada. You know, you, you went through your multiple uh, regions of Canada with multiple bronchoscopists, and you uh, went through the training process to ensure that there was a uniformity of practice and, and a uniformity of, of reviewing things with pathology, et cetera. I mean, that is a nice groundwork and building the, the structure to set up any other form of a uh, study that would be examining things from a bronchoscopy perspective or any other form of an intervention, which strikes me, and David, I'd, I'd love to have you weigh in on this, strikes me as one of the things that's sorely missing from the field of interventional bronchoscopy is well-designed, well-controlled studies. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think both from the bronchoscopy uh, point of view, the interventional bronchoscopists that were involved, uh, but, and also on the screening side, um, you know, this really has gotten a lot of people together that, uh, you know, knew each other before, but um, now into a working relationship. And we've certainly had a lot of uh, other other uh, projects that this has, uh, you know, completely unrelated to this, that this is facilitated just by having those lines of communication open. open. And uh, so I think I think we, we hope to continue to, to do some of these uh, multi-center studies uh, across the country. Yeah, David, I, I, what do you think? I agree with Elaine that, um, and I, I particularly like the idea of not only standardizing bronchoscopist training, because we as pulmonologists tend to focus on, wow, there's variations in pulmonary practice. My own bias for a lot of things, I'll use EBUS as an example, is I actually think there's less variability between us, that is between pulmonologists, compared to pathologists and cytopathologists. And as applied to autofluorescence, there is... Um, the interpathologist variability is substantive. So, but they did a great job 
of controlling for that, of having high-quality pathology readings. And in such a big study, that's a great investment, and um, it's very useful for a lot of other big studies that you might want to consider because, you know, ironically, you know, a lot of academic pathologists, what they care about, you know, reasonably is pathology-type issues, but no one wants to report on um, intra-class correlation coefficients or interpathology, measures of interpathologists, cytopathologists reading. So you could imagine that if you had done the autofluorescence and hadn't controlled for that, um, there would still be doubt. Or conversely, maybe some of the variability between studies, some of the smaller studies, is not variability only between pulmonologists or between patients or between clinical context. These are all contributing to variability, but also between pathologists' reading of those findings. Um, So it's a great aspect to bring together, and hopefully, you know, the Canadian group can leverage this in the future for, you know, in my mind, interventional pulmonary, but of course, all oncology studies where where this would be a relevant uh, finding. Um, Same applies, by the way, to interstitial lung disease. Um, Right. Another good example. No, and you bring up the right point, too. I mean, I think that, you know, one one pathologist. Uh, one pathologist's severe dysplasia is someone else's mild to moderate dysplasia, for example, right? Um, and it does make you wonder about the, the. There's a lot of variables that dictate, you know, the outcomes in a study when in, when you're involving multiple different specialties at the same time. Yeah, and we've we've actually seen that in other bronch studies, uh, in particular in sarcoidosis. We've uh, uh, some of the the previous studies we've had in chest, actually, where where we've had uh, you know fairly significant. Uh, uh, differences, you know, between uh, pathologists when they interpret uh, EBUS specimens for, for for the presence of granulomas, for example. So, in fact, in, in outside of the chest as well, there's in, in benign disease, there's even less correlation or or, or, or uh, with, with interpretation uh, than there is for malignant disease. So, um, uh, perhaps with these dysplastic lesions, where it's a little less, you know, full. full Obvious malignancy. Uh, you wouldn't be surprised that there's actually more uh, uh, difficulty by, for the pathologist to classify them accordingly. You know, and it would be interesting. Um, you know, the um, gynecologists, when they were doing Pap smears, developed a way—not the gynecologists, but really the cytopathologists who were evaluating the specimens—developed um, a way to standardize their readings to decrease the. Uh, reader variability, and um, those, you know, that really hasn't been done for uh, cytopathology for lung cancer, really. And of course, you know, as pulmonologists, you, you only have you have interest, but you don't have um, agency. You know, you can you can only influence people or try to do it and, and hope that they do it. But I think your your paper um, indirectly shows the strength of that approach. Hopefully, um, others will follow. Um, so that uh, it would improve the quality of care, it would improve the quality of academic data, remove one or re- remove one significant source of variability, and uh, you know, maybe there are pathologists in the audience who uh, will take the idea up and run with it. Um, Let me ask a, a, a loaded leading question. So, you know. Uh, my autofluorescent system. Should I should I pack it up and put it in the storage closet? 
Is there still a role for it? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, I think we're still looking. I think some people have, again, maybe some theoretical or, or, or common sense, perhaps, is the better better word, um, uh, areas where it makes sense. But I think you do have to prove it, and I think that's still not there. I mean, you know, we talked about looking for uh, synchronous primaries, and the other one I hear commonly is to look for resection margins. So, right. you know, you have a relatively central tumor. Um, you know, you, you look with white light. Do you really see the edge of the uh, malignant cell? Uh, and maybe autofluorescence gives you a sharper margin. Uh, and people use it that way. I've yet to see a single study that correlates uh, surgical margins with autofluorescence findings. So right. to me, that's a, a very theoretical thing. So perhaps there's a, an indication still, but I don't think at this time I, I see one that really you can take to the bank and say, you should do this test in this patient population in this instance. I, I, just, I don't have it. I don't see it. I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, we really... But I put it in storage where I couldn't reach it. Uh, depends how much storage you have, right? You know, if, if I have no storage, yeah, sure, I would pack it up. If I could sell it to you, I would probably sell it to you. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's probably as soon as I sold it to you, some definitive study would come out and I'd have to buy it back from you. <laughs> well, I wonder, Ellie, you know, maybe the next step is to take uh, the same design of the study but to look at it at... Um, all people who are two years out from their lung cancer resection and to survey that group, you know, and the, a thought to be an even higher risk group, et cetera. Uh, you know, I mean, play the devil's advocate. Maybe even though you clearly took a high risk group and had a, a very high cancer prevalence rate, maybe this works better in a extremely high prevalence group or high risk group. You know, it's, it's all in how one defines high risk, right? Right, and, and we alluded to that earlier in that in some of these very high-risk populations, you know, so people with previous lung cancers, people with, uh, you know, uh, head and neck and esophageal cancers that have been cured of those cancers, um, uh, certainly uh, it seems that they have higher prevalence of some of these findings. Um, again, is that enough to re- recommend it routinely? Should you have to show uh, a, you know, benefit in terms of a patient outcome, you know, whether it's survival or at least... Uh, um, you know, uh, lack of advanced disease down the road, I, I'm not sure. But I, I'm not sure just finding some dysplastic lesions at a certain rate um, is enough to justify it. I think it's enough to justify further research, yeah. um, but it's probably not enough to justify clinical practice. I, I would agree with that. Um, you bring up a great question, which is related to the question of how do you follow up a patient who has been resected for lung cancer, Right. And then the same question comes up, what's the marginal information value on top of what you're doing at baseline? Since at baseline, you're probably getting CT follow-up imaging, the marginal information value is probably going to be similar to what you find here in uh, Lane's study. Um, And the effect on survival, I think, will be even smaller. The reason being... They're going, a high fraction of these resected patients, unfortunately, will pop up with metastatic disease, right. not in their central airways. And, right. you know, and it's just unfortunate, but it's going to happen. And therefore, no matter what I do for those patients, screening of the central airways won't make a difference because if I find a cancer, it wouldn't have killed them because their other cancer did kill them. And since I'm already getting the routine screening CT follow-up, 
the marginal information value, even though the incidence might be arguably even higher than he, he had a pretty good one though. It's, what was it, four point three percent or three point three? Yeah, I mean that's pretty good. Um, right. Uh, so it's going to be really hard to prove the the marginal information value proposition in, in that population. Right. The CT occult uh, ratio to the CT uh, non-occult cancers might be about the same, even if the population is of higher risk. Yeah. Right. That's that's a good, a good a good way to look at it. Well, guys, this has been an excellent discussion. Any final thought process or something we haven't uh, touched upon? Uh, I should probably just acknowledge our funders, which is the Terry Fox Research Institute here in Canada, who funds a, a lot of great cancer research, uh, cancer-related research, and then uh, CPAC, which is a Canadian Partnership Against Cancer, which is uh, essentially public money uh, that was uh, used to fund the entire project. So we certainly need to thank them for their support. Absolutely. Well, guys, thanks so much for your time. This was a fantastic discussion, as expected. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you, and you all have a good day. All right, Bye-bye. you too as well. Thanks, guys.